Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, everybody, we are back. We are doing Doctrine and Covenants sections 137 and 138 today, last two sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. We also have Christopher Hurtado here with us. So it's me and Shiloh and Christopher Hurtado. We're, there's three of us doing the podcast today. So welcome, Christopher. It's good to be with you. Part of the reason that we invited Christopher, apart from his uh, great insight that he's going to lend to this discussion, will be that uh, we have some announcements at the end of this podcast about uh, the where, where we're going from here with Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me. And so uh, we want Christopher to be part of that uh, discussion there at the end. But uh, we're going to jump here into these sections 137 and 138. These are uh, pretty appropriately placed together, I would say, because they both deal with the topic of salvation for the dead. Now, 137, this comes just a couple months before the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. The uh, doctrine of the salvation for the dead really is is really just coming into being. It's really hard to say how much Joseph understands about it at this time. He understands maybe the the concept of of God's love and that he wants to save his children and he's he's going to do it. But how exactly that comes about and the mechanics of it um at least in Joseph Smith's mind don't don't aren't quite fleshed out yet. They don't start making more sense until later when he receives his understanding of baptisms for the dead. Then he's able to fit together this idea of universal salvation with the concept of the necessity of ordinances, which he had a really hard time fitting those concepts together previously. 137 is kind of the promise that there will be an understanding of this. And then 138, um, interestingly enough, you know, is is sort of the the codified, official, fleshed out um, uh, fulfillment of that promise, so to speak. But we don't get section 138 all the way until 1918, and this ends up being the uh, the nephew of Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith, who's Hiram's son. Um, who becomes president of the church. And this is a revelation he receives that then becomes section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so we get to see sort of this this doctrine introduced by Joseph Smith um, that then finally sort of gets its fulfillment much more fully fleshed out. Um, How fully, you know, each person can sort of judge what questions they might still have even after reading section 138. But uh, much more fleshed out, obviously, than than section 137. We've got uh, 10 verses in section 137, and uh, we've got 60 in section 138. 137 comes about 
with uh, Joseph thinking over the death of his brother Alvin. And uh, he has a vision of the celestial kingdom and sees Alvin there. And he can't quite understand how that works because in his mind, um, the ordinance of baptism in particular, but the other ordinances as well, but the ordinance of baptism by proper authority is such an important ordinance. It's so crucial that um, it, it, the non-receiving of that ordinance bars salvation, right? You know, it's, it's absolutely required for salvation. So um, the grace of God cannot overcome the uh, absence of this ordinance, at least uh, in Joseph Smith's understanding. So then he, he gets to section 137 that says, oh, you know, um, those people that would have been baptized if they had the chance or would have received the truth, they will still receive that opportunity. So um, again, he he doesn't th- – this revelation isn't recorded as an official part of church doctrine until later. That's why it gets put into section 137. And it's almost like, you know, he receives this revelation, but – you know, in my mind, it's it's like this raises a lot more questions than it answers, <laughs> section 137. And so I feel like he he almost um, didn't want to canonize it, uh, you know, right out the bat because how exactly this uh, this happens, he he didn't. I don't think he fully had an answer for until we get those uh, sections that talk about uh, baptism for the dead. So. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because here I don't think we can stress enough how much Alvin meant to Joseph. Because when Joseph is growing up, Joseph Smith Sr. is going through a lot of turmoil in his life. And really to the standards of the day, Joseph Smith Sr. is really a failure as as far as the world would look at it. Now, of course, there were so many setbacks that the Smith family had that were completely outside of their control. But like, for instance, you know, when they were up in Vermont before they moved down to Palmyra, they threw their entire savings into the farm. And that was when the whole summer without, there wasn't a summer, you know, everything was winter. The earthquake, or or I'm sorry, the volcano that happens all the way across the planet happens. And all of a sudden, all the way across the globe, they don't have a... They don't have a summer that year. And so they lose their entire fortune and they have to move. And then they have to start over. And then a series of financial setbacks and some bad financial decisions, they end up losing the farm in Palmyra. And it's just, he has nothing to really give his sons. And he has a bit of a drinking problem. And he doesn't go be part of any religion. And he won't really adhere to any religion. And so Alvin kind of follows his father's lead. And Alvin doesn't get baptized in the local Palmyra congregation. And and so Alvin really kind of steps in, in to be almost like a second father figure. He's, he's the responsible, he's the oldest son, he's the responsible son. And we have the record that Alvin is very supportive of Joseph's experiences. As Joseph is recounting these experiences he has, for as much as he loves and cherishes Alvin, Alvin reciprocates and as far as we know, is able to, you know, charges Joseph as he's dying to to be worthy of the plates, as it were. And so when Alvin's buried, the the local pastor, who was actually Lucy Mac Smith's, Joseph's mother's preacher, tells Joseph Smith Sr., it's too bad that Alvin's in hell now. 
because he was never baptized. But it's not too late for you. You haven't been baptized. Now, if you can imagine being a grieving father standing over the grave of your, your eldest son, already having all of these these feelings. And Joseph Smith Sr. was very much a universalist. He believed that everyone was going to go to God. And and so he didn't need to be a part of any particular church or baptize any particular church. And eventually he was an, into the church of Christ with Joseph. But in this way, when Alvin dies, this really sticks with Joseph in, in a very intimate way. And, and it even says in, in several records that they grieved even beyond what was normal to grieve. So when we see here in 1836, Joseph, I mean, this is a pretty magnificent vision. And there's some interesting things about this, this, uh, this vision of about what he's seeing. And it does say it in the chapter heading that this is a vision. And I think sometimes we may think that a vision actually means he saw it with his eyes visually, but that's not really necessarily what a vision is. And there's some clues here that he gives us uh, pretty explicit clues that this is not something that he's seeing with his physical eyes. He even says it in verse one, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. He seems to kind of give us a, a New Testament um, vibe here. But then he's going through and he's like, I've seen, I, I see everything. I saw the gates of heaven. I saw the throne of God. It was a blazing throne. I saw the streets paved with gold. And then he starts going into like the celebrities of heaven. as it were. Yeah. And he's like, I saw father Adam and I saw Abraham and I saw my father and mother. And now, now this is the interesting part is his father and mother were still alive. Yeah. And so this is what's kind of giving us this this very allegorical vibe or you know it's 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 a vision that kind of is a a vision of principle and as opposed to like maybe absolute necessity or of absolute reality um that this is a a vision of principle and then he says and then i saw alvin and of all the things he sees it's the him seeing alvin there in vision whether in the body or out of the body he couldn't tell that stops him in his tracks He's listing off celebrities. I saw Adam. I saw Abraham. I saw my parents. I saw Alvin. It's like, what are you doing here? And then the love comes up, his brotherhood and that brotherly love. And that's when he's given really for the first time this idea, as it says in verse six, and I marveled how it was that Alvin, that he had obtained an inheritance in the kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord, departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not seen baptism for the remission of sins. Thus came the voice of the Lord, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of the kingdom. Now, now this is a, a really interesting way of looking at it, because this really, this really changes a lot of the contextual theology, even of Joseph's day, not just of baptism itself that you can be baptized for the dead which we you know we've talked about in previous sections but and and that we'll find out how to re, how God can practically resolve that matter by proxy but also we're dealing with an american context of calvinism of where from the the puritans and through the second great awakening there's this kind of rejection of of calvinism and the rise of evangelicalism where we now know our place with God because under Calvinism, you didn't know your place with God. You never really knew if you were going to go to heaven or hell. It had already been predestined. So really your works did not matter. 
You just had to be able to do, you had to follow the commandments of God. You had to be pious and, and just, but your works weren't going to get you into heaven. Nothing you did was going to make a difference. And here, this is bringing in, you know, it, it's a very much an American vibe and an American ethos and mythos of individuality being able to have some kind of meritocracy, some kind of skin in the game that you actually get to choose whether or not you're going to act and participate to become a participant in your journey and in your story. And so this, it adds this element of the individual into the, into the conversation that the individual now can know if they would have accepted it. And then finally in verse nine, for I, the Lord will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. So the desires of your hearts are one thing, but we're being, we're now being judged, engaged by our works, the things by which we do, the things by which we obey the commandments, the things by which we now have an individual participation that actually now has a, a variable on where we go with heaven and hell. Because, you know, at this point, I don't, I don't think we've been, uh, I'd have to go back to section 76, but I don't think we've been given the three degrees of glory yet. So it's like heaven or hell, you get to have a choice in this now. So it's, it's really a reworking of the cosmology and of, uh, and of theology of what's really known in their day as well. I think it's interesting that he sees his mother and father there. So either this is something that's happening in the future or it's outside of time, this vision. And, and so it helps us to see that, you know, sort of where Alvin fits in to this soteriology being either that it's again, either in the future, not only now where Alvin is already dead, but later on when Joseph's parents will also be dead, considering that when he's receiving this vision or having this vision, they're still around. And it's interesting also that it says that, that all those who would have received it, that they would have, or that they would be saved and that that's according to their works according to their desire of their hearts. What does that mean? According to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. And, and when I, when I ask that question, I don't mean that to be a rhetorical question. I'm sort of lobbing the ball back to back to you guys. What does that mean? Yeah. I've actually kind of been thinking about that as well. It's like, well, it says two accordings. It's like, is it, is it one or the other, or is there some, what's the relationship between the works and the desires that then fits into the judgment, right? And it that's not exactly clear to me. At least it's not clear to me what Joseph really means by this. I I thought about it for a little while, but I, I, I couldn't really come to a satisfactory um, conclusion about what exactly he's meaning by this. I I did think that so to a point you were making, Shiloh, yes, Section 76 was received in 1832. So the concept of celestial, terrestrial, and telestial is already very much ingrained in in the, the Latter-day Saint theology or, or, or doctrine at this point. And so when they say celestial in this section, um, I think it does actually referring to celestial as opposed to terrestrial or telestial. And, and Joseph's surprised because in section 76, they understand, oh, well, baptism is required for the celestial kingdom. Therefore, if you're not baptized, you can't go to the celestial kingdom. You have to go to the terrestrial or telestial. So he would have assumed Alvin was in terrestrial or telestial, but then he saw him in celestial and he's like, how does this happen? Um, I just think, 
that th- this verse here where it says, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, you know, it kind of raises the question is like, well, how many people is that, right? Is that potentially everybody? Like if everybody in the world did somehow live long enough, not die, could they in some way, you know, could their ideas change? Could they repent? Could they eventually be persuaded to accept Christ? That's really the question here and that hangs in the air for me. And it doesn't really get responded to until section 138, which says, well, um, they may die, but their spirit goes to the spirit world. And then the exact same things happen there. They have the gospel preached to them and they can go through repentance and and all that sort of stuff. So really this this whole strain here is positing not just between the lines, but uh, but becoming more and more explicit that not just salvation in one of the kingdoms of glory, but but being heirs to the celestial kingdom of glory is ultimately the the plan all along of Heavenly Father and what he's leading them into an understanding of that that's where he's um that's where his children are destined. I don't know if the destined's the right word, but that's the ultimate inheritance that his children have for for themselves. Yeah, I like that. And and good call on on looking back on it 1830. It's so fa- it's so funny how fast these sections or how slow they build until the later sections, yeah. and then it's like, and all of a sudden <laughs> we skip like. Well, we get thrown all these <laughs> sections at the end. It's like I don't even know where this is supposed to fit in. It's I feel like, like they should just do a revised Doctrine and Covenants, put everything in its proper chronological order, so we don't have to <laughs> do this anymore. <laughs> hey, at least we're not covering the Quran where the surahs or chapters are listed oh, by, right, length. by length, uh, by yeah, length, not there. by length, <laughs> yeah. and not by the order in which hey, they were Hey, New Testament revealed. is that way, though, with the letters of Paul. They do those by That's length. awesome. I'm going to take a stab at verse 9 here, guys. I'll just have a couple of comments. Yes. You know, So, one, oftentimes when reading something like this, where there's maybe some lack of clarity or some ambiguity, I would rely on grammar. So, I'm just going to offhand, I'm going to dismiss that possibility here because of what I know about how this stuff is, well, about how, how well they write and how you know whoever's writing this stuff down and and joseph smith in particular and i know that he had some help and you know there's some great writers like um who was it that wrote the uh, epitaph john taylor yes you know but but for the most part we even know for example that the 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 book of mormon is punctuated and paragraphed on the fly by printers upside down and backwards because that's how printing works non-believers right yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dismiss that possibility offhand, and I'm just gonna go into what this says. You know, according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. So I see an apparent contradiction, because on the one hand, there's this this idea I'm gonna call it Aristotelian, where there's a, a consequential ethic, and then the other one that's according to the desire of your hearts, or in another way we could put it, and I think of it as I'm gonna say Kantian, where it's this deontological or this. It's just according to your, according to what you intended. Your intention, yeah. Yeah, according to your intention. So is it, is it what you did 
or is it what you intended to do? And it's saying your works, what you did, according to the desire of your heart, according to what you intended. So it just seems like maybe one possible interpretation is, is sort of this mercy and justice idea that there's both hmm. and that there's some kind of correct balance, something like that maybe. That's an idea. When I read through this, the way I've interpreted this for, for several years, and I've told the story a bunch, but everyone who's been on a mission knows, and, and again, I apologize, I've told this before, but everyone who goes on the mission knows that there are those missionaries that are by the letter, by the letter of the law. It's like, you keep the commandments, you keep the rules, because that's the only place you find blessings, right? So you just keep the rules so you have the blessings, and it's a very quid pro quo, very transactional relationship with God. God doesn't bless us until we do this. And and that's awesome. That's that's a perfectly good, fine way to do it. My experience um, where I first came to the awareness of acting by love is when I, I met my mission president. And it was the the awareness that this guy doesn't know me but he really loves me. And it's like, I felt something from him that was completely transformative. And it was, that was the moment when I realized that I would be more than willing to do anything that was asked of me because of how much I feel loved. And so it was this essence of acting out of love in that the rules didn't matter. The blessings on the other side of it really didn't matter. It was the excitement of living in love with and being in love with in, in, in a type of relationship, right? With someone who loved me, it's a very fatherly love. And to be there and to be wrapped up into that love. And I, I was like, I immediately loved him and I knew he loved me. And I, I knew the, the missionary mom loved me. And I knew that, that that was just the way that was. And so I acted it. And so when it looks here and it says from the desires of their heart, is this a possibility where We've learned to love and it's like, I, I can't do anything else, but this is just the desire that I have to move and to act and to be because I'm so filled with the love of God to just, just to express that. Because I think a lot of the times the rules and the regulations, you know, there was, there was one, a, a video I saw today about how, when Jesus came to give the law, he didn't change. He didn't, he didn't necessarily challenge the law of Moses. He, you know, he, in the sermon, he says, you know, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. But what he's giving is he's giving the heart that the original law, that God, God's original law was given. That the rules were supposed to point to this thing that now Christ was revealing in the New Testament, that when you have this heart, this is what naturally manifests from that conversation. This is what naturally manifests from being in love with God. And what people have tried to do is instead they've done the actions without falling in love with God first. And so you rely on the love. It's like putting the cart before the horse. And is that what it's talking about here? That it's not just the works. It's not that God's just going to, you know, you have to put in the works, but it's, he's trying to say, but it's, it's the desire that goes behind it. It's, it's that thing. It's the falling in love with me and me falling in love with you and, and that love and that circle love. And I know it's kind of weird in, in kind of Latter-day Saint speak. We don't talk about being in love with God. You know, that's a very Protestant, a very, a, a very romantic thing, yeah. a more romantic thing. Right. But even this appears in the old Testament. You know, a lot of the times we talk about like the songs of Solomon about how uninspired it is, but this was the kind of like, it was almost a type of erotic love that people were trying to communicate with God. It was that they have fallen so in love with God and they have now experienced the awe of, the awe of God that they couldn't, 
they couldn't possibly put it into any other terms other than that wild feeling of just absolute surrender to to your spouse or to to another human being it's 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 like it's the closest thing i can think of now of course from the contemplative or mystical side of things this is something that exists in all the religious traditions right this idea of of that kind of mystical union in 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 love right with the beloved with god thought of as the beloved that's at least in the jewish christian and muslim traditions Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another possibility comes to my mind from from what you've shared, Shiloh, and that is just as those who would have been baptized if they had known to be baptized or had had the opportunity to be baptized could be saved, you have this sense, this possibility that those who have the desire to do works, even if they couldn't do them, if they would have done them, if they could have done them, that's another interpretation. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that fits. When it comes to either the baptism or the works, I, I think of the Islamic tradition where anyone who, same idea, right? Anyone who has had Islam presented to them and rejects it cannot be saved. But there's this caveat that's understood in the Islamic tradition that if ISIS presented you Islam, that's not actually Islam. And if you rejected that, well, then that doesn't count against you. You had to be presented Islam in its true and correct form. Yeah, which really raises the question. Yeah, <laughs> Right. So from the opposite end of the spectrum, when it's not ISIS, but a, a Sufi mystic, if you could understand that relationship with, with God that he has or that she has, there were great uh, female Sufi mystics in the Islamic tradition there have been, then you would want that and you would choose that, whereas you wouldn't choose ISIS. And therefore, you would choose Islam and you would be saved. Same idea. Yeah, we have a similar idea in Latter-day Saint tradition, getting a real chance to accept the gospel, quote unquote, right? You know, so right. I've heard a very similar talk about that. And and it really all comes from here from section 137 that, well, you know, did that person really get a chance? Well, we can't judge. So when they get to the spirit world, you know, that's where they'll re- really get a chance. So, <laughs> so it's the same kind of discussion. Yeah, exactly. So moving into section 138, you know, we're beginning to see, and I like how you framed that originally, Ben, about how this was kind of the, the, I'm trying to put it in a different term. Fulfillment, fleshing out. Yeah, the fleshing out. This was like the original offering and this is like the fleshing out. And and I like that you brought in the verses, you know, 10 verses here and, and uh, how many over here, like 60, 60 verses over here. And, and so, yeah, you can see that this is really getting flushed out. And, and just like you did, I really honed in on verse one where it said that he'd been there pondering. You know, that's one of my, one of my favorite realizations and moments of repentance in my life was when I recognized that the modality of prayer that I had been trying to force my way into for my entire adult life what uh, you know? What I often call just the formulaic prayer, right? You know, you, you say the right names, the right pronouns, the right order, you know, and, and you say you close it in the, in the same way. And it that, that form of prayer, I, I, I struggled with it my entire life, and just being able to and to and to to make that meaningful and to and to really keep coming into it. And it, it took me stepping in a little bit outside of the LDS tradition to see some other paths and about other forms of prayer. And I stumbled across this one form of prayer called Lectio Divina. And it was a practice by the mystics. And it, it's really just a, it's a four-stage process, but it's one of those where just to kind of make it overly simplistic is, 
if you've ever had that moment when you're reading the scriptures or you're you're pouring your intentionality into something and all of a sudden you have a stroke of uh, of uh, like a spark of of an idea to go do something for someone else and you might go you know I that was revelation or that was the spirit that was God and it had nothing to do with what you were reading but that you as you were pondering over and putting your intentionality into the scriptures you kind of opened yourself up to God to be able to have another idea and another revelation given and I think most of us have had a moment like that and that's lectio divina for me it's it's to really kind of sit over to ponder to to think about but then to become open to whatever it is and that's a form of prayer to be able to come into God's presence through just meditating and pondering. So when I saw him say in verse 1 that he was pondering over these things, and Ben, you brought up before when we were talking about this, but uh, you brought up some of these great verbs, like, you know, that he was, he was reflecting over it, he was pondering over it, and, you know, he, he's, he's, he's pouring over these ideas and and just a lot of verbs to kind of show his intentionality into these ideas and into the scriptures, then to see what opens up for him. I thought that was a great way of kind of introducing 138. And I like the way that Joseph F. Smith opens that up. Yeah, and to be clear, Ben is reading those those verbs right out of the section, right? If you have verse 2, let's see, verse 1, pondering, verse 2, reflecting, they're coming out of the section itself. Yeah, ver- you know, and and then there's there's things that aren't explicitly verbs, but they imply it. It says here, and the great and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and Son and the coming of the Redeemer of the world. There's wonder and awe there, right? You know, he's yeah. just he's he's just sitting with that, right? Verse six and, has and, impressed. Yeah, and and that's what impressed. is is really it is is pretty interesting about this section that it opens up with. He's just sitting there thinking about the love of God, and his mind is is directed towards an understanding of of how it might actually work, you know, in a metaphysical way. So then he has this vision open up to him of how how the love of God will manifest itself in in this metaphysic reality that we would call the spirit world, and. Um, I I don't think there's any problem with taking a lot of this metaphorical or or literal because they both would would still point back to his point was that this is a manifestation of the love of God whether it's metaphorical or literal. I the word reflecting there is interesting to me, you know, you just ponder on the word reflecting. <laughs> it, it's interesting that we use that word in in English. We we talk often um, we we've had we've used the analogy of a mirror before, um, in looking at yourself, and I see it here as a, a a figurative way of talking about how we think and how our brain um, wrestles with ideas. And what I think is fascinating about this word reflect is that it's almost like you are holding up an idea or a thought. And um, in a mirror or comparing it, and then he says, upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world. I can sort of conceptualize of this as you, you get this idea and you sort of hold it up in the mirror in light of the atonement of Jesus Christ and what that means to you. And does this idea fit? Or what what presents itself when this reflects? 
in a mirror, is it true? Is it light? Or is there a continuity or congruence to it? Or is it something that doesn't fit? So anyway, that word reflect kind of hits that. Yeah, and this is very much in line with the way, with our hermeneutic, right? With the way we've been reading uh, with our beatitudinal hermeneutic, with this nonviolent yeah. hermeneutic. It's a way of reading whatever it is that the prophets have written down according to their own understanding and according to their own context and according to their own language and holding that up uh, against, you know, reflecting it against the image of those teachings, those central teachings of Jesus Christ yeah, to see how they stack up and how true they therefore ring. I think it's going to be interesting here in in verses 6 through 10 to be able to to really get in what Joseph F. Smith was thinking about. And I really appreciated this. I think it was what, in section 130 or 131, when Joseph, get, when he reads the scriptures that he was pondering over, I like it when they include those scriptures. It's like, these were the scriptures that, that broke open this idea to me. So he says, I opened the Bible and read the third and fourth chapter of the first epistle of Peter. And as I read, I was greatly impressed more than I had ever been before with the following passages. For Christ hath also once suffered for, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing where, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. That's it. I pondered it. over these things. And I pondered over these things. That I mean, that's it. Now, this is, this is really fascinating because what he ends up pulling out, the next 50 verses that he ends up pulling out of those scriptures, <laughs> it's really fascinating. So that when we realize that it's out of those those three or four verses that the rest of this comes. This is just like section 76, right? Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith. It was Sidney Rigdon, right? They're reading yes. uh, from, you know, about heaven That's and correct. hell. Mm-hmm. And what do they get? It's not in there. It's not in what they read, but they're pondering on what they read and they come out with something else. There's a revelation that comes out of that. Riley and I went into this, or, or was it you and I, Ben? Was it was it you and me, Ben? Yeah, we did seventy six together. Yeah, so we went into seventy six, and we we went into this as this is an example of us of how to receive revelation. And I taught this to my kids and taught them you shouldn't be you shouldn't just be consuming scripture. You should be producing scripture, following in in this way. Yeah, Christopher, you and I did section seventy six, and then I think you turned around and did did a, an episode with Riley on contemplation on seventy six. So, so they're actually that explains we my did, confusion. You did two podcasts on it, just from slightly different approaches. That That's right. Really, yeah, ended up ended up being very close anyway. But um, yeah, we felt like there was more to say after I had recorded with you. I wanted to talk with Riley about this. Right. So as he's pondering over this, you know. Uh, he goes into again referencing the atonement of Christ. He says the eyes of his understanding were opened, and he saw. 
Now, it, just like in the previous section, Joseph Smith says he sighs is not not sure if it was in the body or not. How this happens with Joseph F. Smith, it's it's not exactly clear. I've had experiences that um, I think that as I read the way he describes it, I think the experiences I've had might be similar to what he's talking about here in terms of eyes of his understanding and seeing um, something. It's um, an idea, a a vision, so to speak, an imagination, your mind's eye that comes presented before it, but not in a way that you are controlling what is happening. Rather, um, you are you are watching, you are beholding what's happening. That your your thought processes and your analysis aren't guiding it. So to speak, you are merely a, a participant, a viewer of of what it is that's that's happening. And so, I've had s- similar things happen in that way. I, not to say that I've had visions like Joseph F. Smith describes here, but but similar types of things. And so, that in that concept of how he describes it does make sense to me as a form of revelation. Yeah, I like that. Also, true to everything we've done this year, in verses 12 through 13, I couldn't help but see the Beatitude and the Sermon on the Mount coming out. He says, you know, as I pondered over these things which were written in the eyes of my understanding were opened and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me and I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great, and there were gathered together in one place an innumerable company of the spirits of the just who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality." and who had offered sacrifice in the similitude of the great sacrifice of the Son of God, and had suffered tribulation in their Redeemer's name. And I think that's fascinating there, that they had followed in the testimony. Now, we've talked a lot about the the comparisons between testimony and then over in the Greek with everything dealing with with martyrdom and witness and the and the etymological roots that they share. And we've taken that into to our Book of Mormon discussion with Ammonihah to talk about the suffering and sacrifice narratives and what it means to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. But these have people have taken upon themselves the name of Christ. The, there is the word testimony in there, again, reflecting on that martyrdom witness vibe. And then right there, verse 13, and who had offered sacrifice in the similitude of the great sacrifice of the Son of God. They've literally taken up their cross and followed Christ to Calvary. They are suffering for each other in finite and temporal ways that in which Christ suffers for the for our own sense of injustice. You know, Ben, I don't think I'll ever think about justice differently ever since you said it that way. That Christ suffered for our sense of justice. That we, we're the ones that come to the, to basically to Calvary, to the foot of the cross, seeking for our sense of justice to be satisfied. And he can't, it's, it's like, can he really do that? But what he what he can do is he says, I will suffer and die for your sense of injustice if you will let my sacrifice be sufficient. When we put it in those terms, and when I've used and when I've thought about it in those terms, that's when that atonement really takes power in my life. And really gives me power. It, it becomes an empowering moment. When I allow that sacrifice and I give that sacrifice meaning 
to be able to let that sacrifice be sufficient for the justice that I feel needs to be done. Now, of course, I'm like, you don't deserve it. And the response that always comes to me is, neither do they. I think we should be careful about asking for what we deserve. No, to- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I, I, I don't it, want what I deserve. Yeah, I don't want what I deserve either. I want mercy. But I, but I think that what, that what that does for me, at least in my experience and how I've always taken that, is I don't deal in deservances. And I know, I know there's a lot of philosophies out there about you know living a life that we deserve. Um, that's just not the philosophy, the ethic, and the metaphysic that I live by or that I, I see. But it, it sometimes is when I'm in pain from trauma that's inflicted by someone else. You always want sure. someone else to get their comeuppance. Right. That's the natural man. That's where the sense of justice comes from. And in the spirit of justice, that is where that spirit of deservances comes into play. Yeah, I I definitely think that that happens with others. And I think that where it also has power is when it happens with ourselves. When we look at ourselves and we say, I deserve to be punished, right? Right. And that Christ can come to us and say, not only is my sacrifice enough for your enemies, but it's enough for you. Your greatest enemy. Right. (laughs) And you can afford yourself mercy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And and that's really what it what it comes down to. You know, it's when whenever there is a moment when our actions have injured another person, we we will not wind back the clocks to fix that. And so a lot of the times it's really being able to suffer for that person's sense of justice or injustice and then to forgive and recognize that we forgive ourselves and we get, we forgive our sense ourselves for this sense of justice and injustice. And in doing so that we use the image of Calvary to do this. And so I, I love that we we see the Beatitudes here. That people are suffering tribulations in their Redeemer's name. And this t- takes us back to the Book of Mormon, that it's, it's through the name of Christ that we do all things. It's, that's, that's the name of Christ. And the name of Christ, and what does that mean? But it's the self-sacrificial one that, that willingly walks to Calvary to suffer for the injustices of the other. I think it's interesting, too, how we can experience this Think about sometimes kids, our kids, right? We're parents. They they have this sense of injustice where where you just think, well, this isn't really unjust. This is just how it is. And you tell them, you tell them this, right? You, you should just get over yourself. You think it's unjust, but this is just how it is. Or, or we maybe even recognize, we would admit that it's unjust, but that's just the way things work, right? So just get used to it, we say. But at other times, we are more understanding and 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 it maybe it depends on the circumstances but i i can think of times where i've said oh you really think this is unjust and maybe i still think it's not unjust or i still think this is just the way it is but i i actually am willing to go into 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 their frame of reference right into my child's frame of reference this is, must be what it's like for god right is that we have this sense of it's unjust uh, unjust and you know that we've been wronged and of course the whole chinese farmer story comes into play again mm-hmm. i don't know if i i don't know if we should rehearse that story again but we the point <laughs> we, of we've that talked story about is it a few times yeah we just don't have enough of a perspective just like a child doesn't have enough of a perspective um we before god are like children 
to to really see the whole picture and to know whether something is just or unjust in that way because we don't know really what all of the consequences are going to be and how this may be a blessing and as a matter of fact it, it can be beneficial to us to actually find the silver lining to look for the silver lining or even just to take an attitude of gratitude in general for me it's part of my daily journaling practice to list three things that i'm grateful for every morning uh, you know in, in in general and then in the evening practice if i get to that one i'm not as good about that one is to think about what was great about today and what could have made today better too hmm. you know as i as we were talking you know, Ben and I, you and I have talked about it a few times, but I really, really hate that story about, it's the analogy of the atonement about the boy who takes the lashing for the the younger kid. Yeah. We all know that story. <laughs> and, you know, it just came to my mind a, a different way of telling that story, you know, and just to rehearse, you know, you, you have this poor little boy who has no money for a shirt in the winter and all he has is a big jacket. So he comes into class and the teacher tells him everybody to take their coats off. Of course, he doesn't take his coat off because he has no shirt underneath. That's the only shirt he has. And then she tells him to get up. He says, no, miss. And then she goes, well, if you don't put it up, you're, you're going to get your whippings. And so finally he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And so he, he has to stand up for his whippings and he takes off his jacket to realize he has no shirt. But by this time she's committed and as the authority, she's, she's committed to be able to, to put forward the, the terms of justice on it. And then the big boy in the room steps forward and says, well, I'll take his beatings for him. Right. And the way the story is told is we're always, we always think that the, the teacher is God and the God's going to be the one to whip. And, and in that, I hate that story because that's just not the way it goes. <laughs> all right. It's just, it's a stupid story and we shouldn't ever tell it again. However, that said, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not pulling any punches. It's a stupid story. Well, we should well, never well let me retell it here real quick because I, 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 I I, I hope this doesn't mess up your point, but I want to I want to uh, <laughs> I want to <laughs> I wanna clarify something with the story. So um, you did skip a, a crucial part. What happens is there, there's a rule, and the rule is no stealing. And so this little boy who's hungry and has a coat, he steals the other boy's lunch, and then it comes out that he stole his lunch. Well, the 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 consequence for stealing someone's lunch is you get three lashings. So he comes up to the front of the classroom and he takes off his coat. Everybody sees that he's bare and he's going to get the three lashings. Well, the boy who who he stole the lunch from says, oh no, I'll take the lashings. So he goes up there and he takes the lashings for him. And anyway, so there you go. Okay. It's just still a stupid story. We should never talk <laughs> Sorry, about the story again. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I, you know, just now I thought, what if I'm the teacher? What if I'm the one who has committed to the rules and have committed to the sense of justice and who's committed to the, to the way things ought to be? I'm the one who's imposed this. I'm the one who's following through on this. I'm the one who I'm the authority in the room or I'm the one who has the perceived authority. And I see this going on now. The older boy is now going to suffer for my sense of justice in the class. Not just for the, not just for the whippings, not just for the apple, but for, for my sense of justice. Now, the question I have now is, do I whip the older boy for my sense of justice? And he's willing to let it be, or do I just let it go? And so in that way, I can kind of turn that story <laughs> to something of like, I can, I can, I can think about that story. And if I ever hear that story, that's how I'll retell it. But it's, <laughs> it really comes down to those things that we have such an innate sense of, of what we think is justice. And it's connected to our feelings that another person needs to have their comeuppance. They need to finally be to receive the consequences of their actions. And it's it's interesting how the Sermon on the Mount 
has us deal with those situations. And it's even more interesting to me that that ends up finding its way here into section 130, the very last section of the DNC, really plain about how those who had been faithful to the testimony of Christ were those who had offered themselves as a sacrifice in similitude of Christ's sacrifice, even having suffered tribulations in their Redeemer's name. I think that's a pretty fascinating way to close out the DNC. Well, it is, it is, if not one of the the most central uh, theme of Christianity. So I think it can't help but find itself um, into all of these places. Um, so one of the things that I I want to say, if 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 we're ready to move on with the section here, is that um, that in the story here we've got Christ who okay, so he he dies on the cross, right, and in. The Latter-day Saint theology, your your spirit leaves your body and it goes to the spirit world. So this happens with Christ and his spirit goes to the spirit world. And there's all these people that have died all this time before and their spirits are all gathered waiting. And um, I, I remember there, they made this – the church made this video um, some years ago and it was, it was actually really good. Um, but it, it they, they portrayed in it Christ's – coming into the spirit world. And there was like this light portal that opened up in the floor of the spirit world and Christ came out of it. I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so there all these people gathered around that are, that are waiting for him to come. And, and it's interesting how verse 15 puts it. It says, I beheld that they were filled with joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance was at hand. They were assembled awaiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. In light of the discussion we've had many times about um, our degree of glory that we experience being an epistemic difference rather than a metaphysical one, or an epistemic reality rather than a metaphysical reality. The fact that they are are there waiting for Christ to come and just the mere anticipation of his presence means that they are experiencing, says, they're filled with joy and gladness. That is, it, it seems to me here that they are actually experiencing in the moment the thing that they're anticipating experiencing. Right? The thing that they're waiting, they're, they're experiencing something um, in anticipation for an event to happen that they anticipate will cause them to have the experience that they're anticipating. <laughs> yeah, we've all had this experience, at least in reverse, right? The dread of doing this thing yeah. that we don't want to do. And, and it just becomes so much worse because we just dwell on it instead of just getting over it, uh, getting it over yeah, with. Yeah, pain right? is in the anxiety, not the yes, actual experience. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I just thought that this was an interesting commentary on that that thing that we've posited and, and explored uh, about that epistemic reality of, of our experience that, that we really can – um, just like these people, even without really realizing apparently what was really going on, we can really experience the joy that it is to be in the presence of the Lord, simply anticipating it, right? Now. Yeah, now. Yeah. 
You know, Ben, you, you pulled it out here before about verse 21 when it's talking about the wicked. Neither did the rebellious who rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets behold his presence nor look upon his face. And it's interesting if we take this as the metaphysic, the metaphysical. And it's funny, I'm even now I'm so trained to still see this in a metaphysical light. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've seen the 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 plan of salvation once where they like draw the circles up there and they like draw a line down the middle of the spirit world, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. There's two halves, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and um I've seen that before, but I've also seen many other lessons where we're talking to be like, look, you know, the spirit world's all one actually. It was only divided before Christ and now it's not divided anymore. And I thought, oh, that's that's kind of an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. I would I would redesign that whole thing differently and I wouldn't I wouldn't split it if I were to ever teach that lesson again. I wouldn't I wouldn't oh, split it. Oh, let's be truthful, shall we? You wouldn't redesign the whole thing, you'd throw it in the garbage. No. <laughs> Well, th- th- there's some aspects of how we tell this story that I'm like, that sure, just doesn't sure, do sure. anybody okay. any good. But, sure, yeah. you know, it's like when we draw that line, I, I think that's one of those really definitive ways that enters into the subconsciousness, th- that collective consciousness that we have and how we think about these things. Right. When in reality, what if there is no line? What if it's just we are all there together? It's the same thing that we are here. And what if instead of having a metaphysical distinction to where we feel like we've actually been pulled apart from the wicked people? What would that do to our conversation about how we lived today? Because so much of millennialism, it really kind of leaves a bad flavor in in it when we think that, oh, things are, things are just, we expect things to get worse. And when you live with a theological belief system and structure that things are going to get worse and keep getting worse until God comes and kills all the bad people that you don't, then it's always somebody else who's making it worse, right? If you're a Republican, it's a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, it's the Republicans. If you're, if you're, if it doesn't matter who it is, right? Yeah. If it's somebody inside the church or outside of the church, there's always the other and it's always their fault. And if it's always their fault, then it's always going to get worse. And somehow we're always going to be in the minority. And if we're not in the minority, it's a conspiracy because we're not, we're not winning. And it's that whole thing that ends up entering the sphere of saying that these bad things absolutely need to happen. And so the whole way that we come to the world is through this idea that things are getting worse and we don't actually take into account that, you know what? Statistically speaking, on most categories, like world hunger, death and disease, violent crimes, um, war, war, yeah, even war, war. even war, standard of living, the standard of living, things are getting better, things are getting better and better and better. But the thing is, is that does not fit into a into a what they call a fundamentalist millennial paradigm that things has to get worse, right? And what's interesting about that is that we can still experiencing we can still experience things getting worse. Yes, but that's just in our experience. Yeah, it's not in the reality of the 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 data that you just spoke of, right? But it's still in our experience. Or we can experience peace regardless of what whether or not there's less or more or less war, right? And and even especially when there's less, but even if there weren't. Our experience can be different and separate from that metaphysical reality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in 21, Ben, I really like that you brought out that, you know what? It really sounds like Jesus is among those people. Like they're mixed in with the crowd, but it's that behold, they, they did not behold his presence nor look upon his face as if to say, 
almost like Moses with the serpent. It's like he was there, he was present. All you had to do was turn and look, but you wouldn't. And it kind of gives that same kind of vibe there that, as you said, that epistemic, that, that layer of perception that these degrees of glory have more about our perceptions of reality than they have to do with reality itself. Metaphysically or physically, I don't, I don't know. Is spirit metaphysical or physical? <laughs> Joseph Smith says it's physical, but you know, some people would say spirit's metaphysical. Um, whatever, he's he's metaphysically or physically there, and um, but epistemically to these people, he's not. It says they're in darkness. It says where these were, darkness reigned, but among the righteous there was peace. This is really brought out. I, I feel like he uh, Joseph Smith gives a parallel to this. And and then he start he he brings in the mortal ministry of Christ and he says oh I saw that you know when he was in the spirit world he was among all these people but it was only those who were really looking and anticipating his coming and 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 uh, looking for what would happen that recognized him that saw it that understood it that um, that it was meaningful to them. And he says, this was the same way it was in his mortal ministry. But over in verse 25, I marveled for I understood that the Savior spent about three years in the ministry among the Jews and those of the house of Israel, endeavoring to teach them the everlasting gospel and call them unto repentance. And yet, notwithstanding his mighty works and miracles and proclamation of the truth in great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to his voice and rejoiced in his presence and received salvation at his hands. In other words, just like when he was on the earth, um, also in the spirit world, everybody was there around him. Like you were saying, you know, they, they were there, uh, but there there wasn't a, a recognition, a realization, an experience of his presence. Well, Ben, as we we're getting here to, to close up, towards the end of 138, we have – Another list, what I call the celebrities of the celestial kingdom. Um, but basically, you have Father Adam, Eve, Abel, Seth, Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elias, Elijah. He's seen Joseph Smith, Elijah, and all the prophets among the Nephites. It's kind of like who's who. You know, he's seeing all there. And and then he, he goes down, he says, the prophet Joseph and my father Hiram and Brigham Young and John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff. They're they're all there, and so it's it's this fascinating get together of of people that he's he's seeing there. One of the things that's interesting uh, about that to me, Shiloh, is if this is a vision. However, this works, right? If this is a vision, let's say you're seeing them. Whether you're seeing them with your physical eyes or with your spiritual eyes, how do you know what these people look like? Are they wearing name tags? Hello, my name is. And so I think that that. That idea gives us a sense of a, it's a question, right? That's meant to help us to imagine what this might be like. You would have to have a sense that is non-visual right. of knowing who they are. And I think that's helpful. It's like when you have a dream and there's there's people in your dream and you just know who they are. Exactly. Like I've had dreams of my wife and it was like in my dream, I knew it was my wife, but it didn't look anything like her, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah, I've had that same thing. That's a really good point, Christopher, about – because it does. Even the section heading starts that this is a vision. And I think in a lot of ways, we need to be able to keep in mind what visions are. That visions are not necessarily visual sightseeing things. That these are supposed to be sometimes not even taken literally. Sometimes these are allegorical. Sometimes these are – oh, what was the word I was looking for before you guys? Um 
figurative. Figurative. I was going to say it was the F word, but I couldn't say that. <laughs> the F word. Figurative. And, and you're bringing the word, the D word into it, right? The dream word is helpful too, right? To think in those terms because we've all experienced that. Yeah. And yeah. so this can be a dream where you're not asleep. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a dream when you are asleep. Well, do y'all have there anything else to say about 138? Well, I want to um, I want to bring up just to drive the point home I was making earlier about the epistemic condition of the righteous. So I talked about the epistemic condition of the the wicked, so to speak, right? But there's there's a condition going on with the righteous where they're experiencing this joy and gladness because of their deliverance, and Christ comes to declare to them their deliverance, and they don't almost as if they didn't really realize that they already were experiencing their deliverance. <laughs> Even before he declared it to them, they just didn't have a name for it, right? They didn't have something to grasp. And and I think that's borne out in these verses here in 49, um, 50, and 51. Um, it He talks about all the prophets of the Nephites. It says, they mingled in the vast assembly and waited for their deliverance. For the dead had looked upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage, right? This just screams epistemic experience, epistemic reality. The, the, in, that's the way they perceived it, that their separation from their body was a bondage. And what happens? Christ comes. These the Lord taught and gave them power to come forth after his resurrection from the dead to enter into his father's kingdom. In other words, Christ came and gave them knowledge that they really were that they really were experiencing and and could in that moment experience the glory of the celestial kingdom and enter into their father's kingdom. Um some of this point came up earlier when we did section 129 and we talked about how Joseph said there's there's three uh three keys Right and and how you you discern um, uh, angels that come, and one is an angel of a just man made perfect. One is is an angel with a resurrected body, and one is the devil. And and we talked about how uh, and the uh, angel of a just man made perfect would appear in his glory. And it's like, well, what what glory are we talking about here? Well, it's his recognition of that he can li- he can exist in a state a beatitudinal state of having received the kingdom of god even though he's still in anticipation of the physical or metaphysical realization of that uh, reality you know there's there's another idea here that's closely tied in with this idea for the listener who's unfamiliar with the idea and that is Riley and I covered it in an episode on resurrection, the idea of living a fully res- resurrected life before you die. Hmm. That's that even, in fact, Jesus, the Christ himself lived a fully resurrected life before he died. And so that's right. another idea that, that fits right. in here is this idea yeah. that you can experience this now. I like that. Well, both of you, we have we've reached the end of the road with section 138 and now with the DNC. 
So this has been a, this has been a really fascinating journey this year to be able to, you know, Ben, when you and I first sat down to talk about how we were going to try to tackle the DNC, you know, it was a completely different animal than the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon is narrative first, and then it has doctrine that's intermingled with the narrative. And Doctrine and Covenants is the reverse. It's it's you have these revelations, and then you've got to mix in just a, an external narrative into the mix to try to be able to incorporate these revelations. Yeah, it's more difficult in that sense is that sometimes you have to bring in that external narrative to fill in the gaps and make sense of some of the thing, the revelation there. It's not given to you all the time. Right, exactly. And and with the Book of Mormon, it's kind, of, it's kind of easier than the rest of everything because moving into the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament, you know, there's been more commentary written on the Old Testament than probably any other book of scripture. And then the same with the New Testament. And, and so it's going to be a really interesting uh, – Experience, and we have some uh, things to announce here coming up. But, but I just wanted to, to turn back over the year uh, for both of you, and and then I'll, I'll I can finish up as well. But just to see if there's anything over the last year about what stood out to you this year with Come Follow Me. What what may have been a a a, a meaningful moment? Was there a thing that uh, that you found that you liked the most this year in reading Come Follow Me, or kind of just a, a reflective pause? But do either of you have anything that stands out as far as? Uh, as what you've studied this year with Come Follow Me. I was thinking about this for a little while and it it was it was really hard for me to say, oh, this is my favorite thing because I, I don't know it. I'd have to spend probably an hour going through them and be like, oh, this one was my favorite. Oh, wait, no, this one was my favorite. Um, but what did stick out to me as I was thinking about it um, was when we covered section 109, which was the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. And what stuck out to me about this is, is I didn't, I didn't know. This is often the case, but particularly with this section, I didn't know what to do with it when I first uh, listened to it. So how I typically uh, prepare for the Come Follow Me's is sometime during the day I will pull the section up on my phone and I'll listen to it to get my mind kind of thinking about some of the concepts. And then later in the evening, I'll sit down and I'll read the scriptures and, and mark the things that stand out and sort of conceptualize in my mind how, how it is that I am thinking and feeling and, and want to approach the section. And, and section 109 wasn't I, – I didn't really have a, um, a way to approach it that made sense to me. Um, but then I, I sat down with it. And um, started reading through it, and I started feeling, as I was reading, kind of the ups and downs of what was going on. And I realized that, you know, we talk about it as a prayer, but um, but we read it as a revelation. And I was realizing this should be read as a prayer um, and a revelation, but to me, I needed to conceptualize it more of as a prayer and realize that he's praying. And then it kind of unlocked it for me, so to speak. Um, I realized that he's in this prayer, there's this struggle that's going back and forth, this up and down, this wrestling with God, this dance with God over all of the things the saints have experienced, what they're anticipating to experience, um, and, and their hopes for the temple, their hopes for the future, um, and wrestling with with what is what God has promised them, and 
it really, really opened up a, a dimension of of how scripture uh, comes about uh, from a prophet to me in that it, it, it became much more intimate. You know, this wasn't anymore something where it was just like, you know, the prophet sat there and, you know, stared forward and in a monotone delivered the revelation, right? <laughs> um, it, it was more raw and real and, and intimate. You were kind of like looking into Joseph Smith's soul, so to speak, as, as what he was experiencing in that moment. And he was sharing that with us. The ups and downs of his prayer, the, the things that weren't true, right? That he, that he speaks in his prayer and then, and then turns back later two verses and, and contradicts it. As, as odd as that sounds, I loved that. I thought it was so fascinating and so meaningful. So, you know, I think back over the, the episodes that I've co-hosted either with you, Ben, or with you, Shiloh, in the Doctrine and Covenants in particular, my favorite episode has to be Section 76 with Ben, which has already been mentioned in this podcast, right, in this episode. And so, obviously, that was a good experience for me, and I think it was for Ben, too, and it certainly was for Riley and I when we went into that same conversation. I felt compelled to go into that conversation again with Riley. And so we got a lot of mileage out of that section in terms of how to receive revelation and, and how to understand prophecy and revelation. And when I think about general thoughts about the last year and studying the Doctrine and Covenants in general, it's again on, on that topic that I, that I reflect. And it's in the idea of how prophecy and revelation work and how we've been able to see and distinguish between what's Joseph and, and his own experience and time and place and context and milieu and how that shows up in his wording and in his preoccupations and his, his own experience and how that comes through. And yet we've also been able to see God peeking through the cracks and in between the lines and to be able to distinguish the two and to get experience of how to read scripture in general from knowing so much more about the context in terms of church history than we do say maybe about the the context of the Book of Mormon, which is even, we can give it a, an ancient, you know, an Old Testament context, but even that's controversial in some sense, right? Uh, and then compared to say the Old Testament where where we have to go next, right? And where we'll have a lot of studying to do. So, you know, it's been it's been helpful to have that that sense of history and to be able to bring that into the reading, as you guys mentioned, right? To be able to, to have that context to be able to understand then what's prophecy, what's revelation, and how that's distinguished from what is the the prophet himself, his whichever prophet it may be, again, because I'm taking this as a principle that I can apply in, in all of exegesis, of all of sacred texts, of that prophet's own preoccupations, time, place, milieu, etc., context in general, right? And so that said, I think my favorite episode was Shiloh. You know, I, I, when, when we reflected on the 50 episodes that we've recorded of, of Latter-day Contemplation, I actually went through all the episodes to think about 
you know, what were the, the, some of the moments that stood out. I didn't do this with this, with this podcast. I didn't prepare for this question in this way, even though I knew we we're going to have this conversation. So I actually think back and I'm going to go ahead and mention the, the favorite episode that I've recorded with Shiloh because it goes all the way back to the first time that I guess co-hosted with Shiloh. And that was back in the Book of Mormon. And I want to bring the same principle into play in, in recalling this experience because I had been studying. And so I, I bring this up all the time, the, the value of actually spending time going into the books. And I don't mean just obviously the sacred text, but a sacred text from all the traditions to go in this, in this way that we've been taught through the Doctrine and Covenants to seek truth wherever we can find it. And then also to go into the context to study history. I've spent so much time in studying history too, and, and trying to understand the context of both church history and of ancient history. And I remember I had been studying, I had actually been invited over to Shiloh's house during the lockdown when there were few opportunities to get together with friends there were also a few opportunities for me to be alone because everybody was always home. And so I remember it was a hard choice that day, but I chose to stay home alone over going to spend time with my, with my friend, with Shiloh at his house. And I just went into a deep dive into some things in Buddhism that just ended up dovetailing into the conversation that we were having. What, what do you remember what, what episode that was Shiloh? I don't. I remember the conversation, but I don't remember the episode specifically. I'd have to go look it up. You're talking about one you did in the Book of Mormon? That's right. Because wasn't there an episode that um, you guys recorded and it the recording was so bad it wasn't salvageable? And so we missed? Yeah, there, there was that one. And then I think it had to be around Helaman. I think it was, it was a, somewhere in Helaman then. This was, I yeah. think it was in Helaman. And so it, the, the conversation was around the garden myth. It had everything to do with where, where we're going next, actually, in the beginning, in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so yeah. that's something we'll maybe have the chance to talk about again and to bring that into a context where it seems to fit better. But again, the point I'm making is that it actually fit in Helaman. And so that's what I've learned here. Yeah, I love both of that. I love both, both of those observations and reflections. You know, when when I originally came on and had had the idea to start the podcast, you know, Ben and I, you had we'd done LDS Liberty together, and we we've talked for years about about starting a podcast back up, and the difficulty was with LDS Liberty a lot of the time was trying to create content and trying to come up with the, the new idea, right? And Christopher, I know you, you probably have this same thing going on with Latter-day Contemplations, like what we're going to talk about this week and having the ideas and always kind of formulating these ideas. And so there's, you have to have the creativity to create the idea to do it. And Come Follow Me has been able to offer a type of scaffolding. But one of the things right. that we've learned is that while we are able to have the content in front of us every single week and we know what we're going to talk about, we're also kind of forced to have to talk about what we're going to talk about. We don't have the, uh, we, now we've lost the ability of going out and venturing into something else, right? So we're beholden to the conversation that we're, we're going to have. And, you know, it, it's evolved over time and how, when we were with LDS Liberty, the idea was maybe the next thing we do is we just start taking little vignettes of the Book of Mormon because, you know, taking King Mosiah, then taking King Noah and taking, you know, maybe revisiting Ammonihah or maybe, or, you know, anything that we can possibly think of Samuel, the Lamanite, or these little, little sections of scripture that we could, uh, that we could have a couple episodes on. 
And Come Follow Me really was able to provide that we just followed the script. And when we came into Doctrine and Covenants, I re- I personally received oh, just shy of maybe a dozen messages from people who were in various Facebook groups, people who I know who had listened to the podcast, um, expressing their concern for Doctrine and Covenants just because of where they are at with their with their discipleship and their faith journey, and talking about because there are certain things that and the way they've been talked about before that has landed sideways for them. And I had that on my heart and mind when we started with with Come Follow Me this year. And as Ben and I, we we poured over and thought over and pondered, I guess we can use that word, um, borrowing it from Joseph F. Smith, the way that we decided to approach it was trying to find God amidst the cracks of, of seeing God come out of the cracks and be able to see God pour through the scriptures and pour through Joseph and, and to be able to see, because when we study church history, um, now me personally, it's one of those things to say, I don't believe that everyone needs to study church history, but when you do really study church history and you, and you've kind of gained enough knowledge from, from what the sources that the church has, and then you're able to venture off into other historical sources of original source texts and 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 uh, things like Rough Stone Rolling on Joseph Smith. You know, we brought up The Kingdom Nauvoo by Ben Park. And we start going to maybe university press books and what the scholars are saying about this. Um, it's it's going to change the way that you view and, and you come to the belief in in the restored gospel. Just more knowledge. You know, there's a there's a psychologist who who I read recently who said that all knowledge is a form of death and all knowledge is a form of rebirth in that when we have new knowledge, the old knowledge and the old self that we had before we became aware or had more exposure, the old us dies. And with new knowledge, we're born into a new world. And, and so it's, it's like a, re- a death and a resurrection every time we learn something new. And so in coming into church history, I knew that there were going to be certain areas that were problematic, more problematic for some of the listeners than others. And it's one of the, so going through, I don't know if there's a specific episode that has stood out to me the most, but inevitably, almost every single episode when we're all done and I, I go back inside and I start talking to my wife and she asks, how did it go? And then I start talking to her about the podcast Inevitably, what comes up for me is how grateful I've been for you, Ben, in in being a strength and an example in learning how to be able to find God in the scriptures in ways that has even been sometimes difficult for me. And so my remark when I come back and I talk to my wife is, it's been a common thing. I'm like, Ben found some things in there that I, I just hadn't pulled out. It was a really good conversation. I found God tonight. And as I've listened to several of the listeners, I, I know that this has been this has been a shared experience with a lot of people. And so as I reflect over the last year, and I see all of these things going on in, in the Doctrine and Covenants and in church history, and with all the problems that we can look back. And, and you know, if we, if we want to look for problems, we're going to find problems. 
but to be able to try to find God. Now, that's a whole different endeavor. And so this year, in studying the Doctrine and Covenants and in, in, in going through and in focusing on where is God here? And not just when it says, and thus saith the Lord or I the Lord, but really finding that Sermon on the Mount hermeneutic, that God that comes through in that beatitude God and the Sermon on the Mount, that one that walks with us and sits with us. And, and as I recorded with Ben, with Christopher, it's, it's been the same experience. So I want to thank you both for, for your examples this year in really, in really helping me in my discipleship and my relationship with God, because it's really, it's really benefited me and it's benefited my family. So thank you both. So in moving forward, we have some exciting news and in transition into Old Testament. Now, Old Testament, Ben, man, this is this is one of those scriptures that I've always wanted to teach. <laughs> I've never I've never had the opportunity. I taught gospel doctrine until we taught Old Testament. I taught seminary until we taught Old Testament. Old Testament has seemed to be the one thing that has always escaped me. And as I was looking forward to this next year, I, I was like, we've got to do this. But then as we started getting it was about August, I think we brought it up for the first time. We started discussing things. And after, uh, so right now I'm in my graduate studies in religion um, at Claremont Graduate University, and this semester has has quite literally almost sank me. But with COVID, in the age of COVID, all of my classes have been digital, and so I haven't had to travel the three hours south. It's about two and a half, three hours south to, to Claremont to attend in-person classes. But as per January, when I start back in, I have one more year of coursework in my in my PhD work. But as I start back next next uh, year, they will be in class. And there might be a special designation I might get for a couple of them for digital, but I'll be traveling a lot. And so this was going to preclude me from being able to continue further with the podcast. And so there was, a, there was some discussion about what do we do? What do we do with this? Do we, do we stop with the Doctrine and Covenants? And, and Ben, you expressed some desire to move forward and, and to keep moving forward. And, and th- this was a great idea. And then randomly... Completely randomly, Christopher, you messaged me on the side saying, so what are you going to do with come follow me with, with, uh, with Old Testament? Can I be a part of it? <laughs> well, I've always wanted to do this too. I, right? <laughs> I, for me, one of the best ways I've learned to, to learn is to teach it because there's a responsibility to, to learn it well to teach it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our big announcement is that as, as of January with Old Testament – this is will be my last episode, and I will be back for guest co-hosting whenever whenever need be and whenever whenever I can be of value or of uh, of assistance. And Christopher, you have agreed to step in and to to keep carrying the the banner with with Ben. And so Old Testament, you get to you get to be here, and Ben, you 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 get to do Old Testament as well. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this. So, so take a, <laughs> take some time to not just because I'm glad you get to do it because because this is this is quite the endeavor. So so tell tell everyone what is your plan for next year and how are you going to tackle the Old Testament? <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to tackle the Old Testament like <laughs> like a baby tackles a, an offensive lineman. I mean, 
So the Old Testament, in terms of, it can be very intimidating. It is in our in our scriptural canon. It's the oldest book of scripture, and it has also the most commentary on it of of any of our standard works, both within and without our faith tradition. I, I would say mostly without our faith tradition. There's there's considerably less commentary on the Old Testament within our faith tradition than probably a lot of the other standard works. Again, that that really places it in a difficult uh, place for us just from the standpoint of the fact that I am personally not anywhere near a scholar of any scripture, much less ancient scripture like uh, the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. So uh, approaching this, I, I kind of had to step back and say, what is what is it that I'm doing here? And um, I would say what what I'm not doing, um, and and then Christopher will speak for for himself, and and we have ended up in the same place on this, but he'll speak for for how he's going about it. Um, what I'm not doing is trying to give some sort of scholarly treatment of the Old Testament. Um, if uh, people want a scholarly treatment of the Old Testament, they they uh, will be disappointed when they come to our podcast. <laughs> we we might give some uh, commentary pull from here and there, but but uh, ultimately we're coming at the Old Testament with the same type of hermeneutic and perspective and um, outlook that we tried to approach both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants with, and and that's to find God, to find Christ to find the Sermon on the Mount, how it is that we relate to God and God relates to us. I know that uh, for many people, that's a real challenge in the Old Testament because um, it, it, the way that the scripture is, uh, n- the narrative of the scripture can really make that difficult from a consistency point of view, con- seeing a consistent um, loving God in the Old Testament can be more difficult to find in a lot of respects. And then just the way that the the scripture is structured and its length can also make things more difficult with with a lot of things like Chronicles and you know Leviticus and stuff like that, getting getting through a lot of that stuff and pulling, the meaning out and and finding what we're looking for in terms of of our our hermeneutic. Um, so that's that is what I see as the challenge. The thing that really excites me about it is is I know that stuff is there. I know it's there, right? There's gold in them there hills. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so it's it's very exciting to be able to to dive in and find that. And pull that out and and examine it and see how it uh, it enriches my understanding and experience. So, yeah, you know, Ben, our, our hermeneutic is this beatitudinal hermeneutic, which comes from the New Testament, and yet it comes to us. I think I can say it comes to all three of us originally uh, through Shiloh from from a book we all read, 
which and it, and it didn't actually that book didn't give a beatitudinal hermeneutic it gave a cruciform hermeneutic and it's in this way that we talked about earlier in this episode about holding up that cruciform christ as a mirror through which to see the old testament it was the old testament in particular right this is i'm talking about cross vision by gregory boyd and with shiloh's interest in going deep into the into the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And I remember this started with this, these meetings that we had, right? The, these meetings via Zoom where we talked about the, the Beatitudes over a number of weeks, that it became this, inspired by Gregory Boyd, it became this Beatitudinal hermeneutic. And we, I, a funny story comes to my mind. I was hiking with a, a philosophy uh, student, a, a fellow philosophy student, when I was a philosophy student at BYU, and he said to me, he says, you know, I, I have a hard time believing in the God of the Old Testament. And I just had to laugh because we, we believe that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. <laughs> and yet that's so, it's so hard to see is what you, I, I hear you saying, Ben, sometimes. And yet you and I both know it's there and we're going to find it and we're going to bring it out. And this, this hermeneutic that we've adopted that that you, you and uh, Shiloh have used in going through the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants we're going to bring to the Old Testament. And, you know, we, I'm not a, an Old Testament scholar either, but, you know, I do, I do read a lot. I read a book or two every day or two. And just as Samuel Johnson says, a man will turn over half a library to write a book, I will turn over half a library to record this podcast over the next year. I'm willing to do the work. I accept the challenge. I'm excited for it. It's going to be a great experience for all of us, for, for you and me, Ben, and for the listener. I'm going to use up a lot of Audible credits um, on the recommend, on your recommendations, Chris. <laughs> all right. I do that too. When I'm, when I'm not reading a book, I'm I, listening to I will to one. follow as much as I can. Yeah, you'll have plenty of time driving. I know you have some Audible listening of your own and, and whatnot, but maybe you'll get a chance to listen in too. Shiloh and, and share, you know, call us up and, and share your ideas and we'll bring those to the podcast even if we can't have you on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I cannot tell you how excited I am to to hear what you have. And the first episode will be out in the first the first Sunday of the month. I believe it's January second. So I know that you are already working on the back scenes to to know what you're doing because I've heard you talking about it. So I, I'm super excited. I can't wait for it. Yeah, and, and so another thing is, God willing, this episode comes out with the Latter-day Contemplation episode that we're recording tomorrow with Ben to go into this hermeneutic, to actually go into this nonviolent hermeneutic and, and how we came about it and how it works. We're excited to have Ben on the podcast. Riley and I are both excited to, do, to record that episode tomorrow and to have it come out at the same time as this one. So if you're listening to this episode and you haven't heard episode 52 of Latter-day Contemplation, I invite you to listen to that episode too. Awesome. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Ben, do you have anything else to, to add before we close out? Can't think of anything. All right. Well, for my last time for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you everybody for listening. 